Please stay tuned for the Farm and Garden Show, coming up next. And good day to you out there. Welcome to the Farm and Garden Show, first Thursday. This is the Matthew, Lemma, and Leela show without Lemma and Leela. Uh, they're having some holiday celebration with family. Today is the day we broach the most important topic for any being whom would consider themselves a respectable farmer. Today we are going to talk about compost and soil management techniques sprinkled with small flights of fancy and a dash sneak peek of recent advancements in our understanding of soil science. Right now in boardrooms all across America, big agriculture executives are shivering in their boots as we are on the verge of a new revolution in our thinking about our human relationship to farming and the biosphere. The greatest threat to big agriculture are the microbes all around us. Microbes either ignored, misused, or allied with will determine the fate of our species and potentially the fate of the current iteration of this biosphere. To fight the vagaries of our currently broken food system, you might consider re-entering into relationship with the ecosystem and reconnect with the essence of all living things. Soil and the microbes, which manage the soil, create soil, recycle the soil, the rock eaters, movers and shakers, oh, and the microarthropods, those little wiggly jigglies in the soil, I like to call them, are the ultimate underdogs in our journey away from the degradation of our biosphere and towards a truly harmonious balance of all things terrestrial. We large-bodied folk, whether steed or bird or fish, need the help of the ancients. They are the first ones to have created a home for themselves, and by extension, we, their future ancestors, on this terrestrial world called Earth. To use a gratuitous technological metaphor for all my screen-dwelling homies living within the screen cultures, we might say that microbes are the software of the hardware that is the living Earth. The raw, supercharged, glowing, nutritive materials which make their way up from the vibrant, rocky interior of this time-capsule planet eventually become food for the plants and animals above. A true perpetual motion that has no equal. A magical convection in the ether of this cosmos. So far as we know, the life systems of this planet began before the end of the Hadean period, that wonderful, presumably prebiotic, planet-wide lava ocean that took eons to cool and solidify. The microbes which streamed into the atmosphere, floating above the surface, were drooling in anticipation of the food below. Perhaps microbes were even in the upper atmosphere before the surface was adequately cooled enough for their fall to the ground. It was thus that they began their infinite creative march into deep time. After all, are we not in a chicken-and-egg scenario? Did microbes get here first, or were they born on the earth? Dynamic matter becomes inert and back again towards creativity. Who knows? Time seems to keep its secrets forever. Microbes are the ether that make up the very spirit of life in the cosmos. Yes, I am assuming that if the ancient Gnostic maxim of as above, so below is to be taken seriously, I take it upon my imagination to infer that life is on every surface or topological construct in the entire universe. Can we say that now? 
perhaps even paradoxically surviving the journey into black holes and venturing forth into other mother universes, playing towards infinity in the depths of awe and wonder. Turtles, all the way down, my friends, all the way. In short, if you can take away anything from this wild ride today, it is this simple equation. Microbes equals good. No microbes equals bad. The journey towards compost was and is a hero's journey, in my humble opinion. We go from the known into the depths of the unknown, through the threshold, meeting with helpers and mentors, and making our way through the abyss of the underworld, experiencing transformation, and finally receiving the very essence of life, the microbes all around. And don't forget the wiggly jigglies. Brought home to the village for its own delight and transformation. From soil to grave and back again, we walk hand in hand. But enough of that nonsense. Let's get practical here. What is compost according to modern thinking? I would say it's a form of soil management, form of terraforming, biosphere creation. The theme of today's show. Compost is simply properly decayed organic matter. There is no consensus on what properly decayed means, though. But here's my two cents. If it smells bad, it's not compost. It's rotting organic matter. That's improper compost, not the kind you would invite to a family dinner. If it smells good, and you will know, because it resides deep in our morphogenetic instincts, if you can't tell what the original parent material was you have properly decayed organic matter. It will most likely look dark and have microarthropods, those little wiggly jigglies again, and worms coursing through its substrate. It should not be too hot to the touch or steaming. It should be as cool as the soil under your feet. Hot organic matter is in the beginning stages of decay and has many harsh biochemical residues and disease-causing microbes completing their normal life cycle of succession towards a stasis of biological equilibrium. Cool, fully composted material is likely well oxygenated and contains a diverse array of fungi and bacteria. By the time the process is complete, you might not even see little wiggly jigglies and only a few little worms here and there. It has been completely broken down, deconstructed, this kind of compost is sadly something most people never get to witness, especially if you buy your stuff from the store. Making large batches of aerobic no-turn cold compost has yet to reach the industrial levels of compost production that most of us are familiar with. Large municipal windrows stretching to the horizon, where tractors rule the day and do their best not to start a flammable thermophilic chain reaction, are how most compost is created today. And I'll tell you what, it's better than nothing. High-quality compost has a higher ratio of fungi to bacteria. But don't take my word for it. Check out any recent agricultural research journal or extension publication, and you will see that we are entering into a new paradigm of agriculture. Ideally, we are seeding the land back to the ancient intelligences of the microbes, both below and above. But one should only do that if they yearn to call themselves sustainable. This fungal-bacterial ratio 
is turning out to be one of the greatest metrics you will have for measuring the efficacy of how your compost is going to affect your farming system. Lots of bacteria and few fungi mean you have low microbial diversity and your plants will suffer greatly. Considering that fungi really enjoy oxygen like we do, you might have a lack of oxygen in your soil, a lack of structure, an organic matter. The carbon cycling of the soil system is hampered if the denizens of this metaphorical house party fail to invite all of their friends. Fungi are much better at metabolizing the complex lignin cellulose makeup of decaying organic matter and make it available to the bacterial community for further breakdown and release of simple sugars to feed the plants and microbes around the root zones, not to mention the dozens of micronutrients that most likely will not be on your soil test from the Agriculture Extension Office. Here's an interesting brief history of compost by National Geographic writer Nathan Sider, titled Ancient Methods. The application of reclaimed organic material to farmed fields dates to at least the Stone Age. Archaeological evidence from the British Isles suggests that Scots improved their small-scale farms with compost as far back as 12,000 years ago. These early farmers likely plowed and seeded compost heaps in situ. Instead of moving compost into fields, they turned the heaps into plots and planted directly in them. From the Stone Age, it took another 10,000 years before someone eventually wrote about compost. As the first empire to implement a functional bureaucracy, the Akkadians in Mesopotamia kept records by scrawling cuneiform onto clay tablets. Some of these tablets from King Sarjan's region around 2300 BC are believed to include the, include the earliest written reference to compost. The practice was not limited to Mesopotamia, though. Mediterranean farmers in Greece and Italy commonly called, commonly cycled agricultural waste from one farm operation to another, and Chinese farmers regularly fertilized their rice paddies with anaerobic, lacking oxygen, composting techniques. Westerners also recently discovered ancient composting methods in African and Amazonian rainforests in North America. Indigenous peoples of North America wrapped seeds in fish parts to supplement nutrient availability. And that's just one technique among many that have been found in archaeological sites. That's the end of the quote from the article. And let's not forget the non-human intelligences, namely our plant and animal brothers and sisters, composting techniques. Let's remember how the bears of North America carry the salmon carcasses high into the timber to supplement the food for the microbes of the forest, which then in turn feed the trees, and the trees feed them. Sounds like orosporos to me. There is a species of turkey in Australia called the brush turkey, that purposely builds compost piles to incubate its eggs during brooding season. They keep their compost piles at the perfect temperature in order to ensure the development of their young chicks. Even the Earth's rivers have a hand in making naturally formed piles of organic matter alongside tumultuous streams, where a build-up after a storm can create perfect thermophilic conditions for a compost to begin its journey on the road to awe. Last but not least, the greatest curators of compost on the planet, the trees and plants all around us. 
Every year, some gargantuan megaton amount of organic matter falls to the ground to begin its journey into the underworlds, where the microbes begin the cycle all over again. Trees are the world's experts in creating perfect conditions for a no-turn cold compost pile, rich in fung fungal and bacterial diversity. Remember Masanobu Fukuoka of One Straw Revolution? The dude who made seed balls famous and started his own movement of natural farming in Japan. He asks us to ponder a simple yet profound question. Who fertilizes nature? I ask you again, who fertilizes nature? Masanobo's infinite spiral of creation goes towards the center and not out and away from harmony and perfection. Water is the prime mover in this perfect union of chaos and order, in this splendorous world dance of living sparkling intelligences. Does compost equal nutrients? Is compost a fertilizer? Or is it the secret held by the microbes which break down the materials into that which plants can digest and consume below into the incomprehensible black box we call the root zone? Which humans first noticed the reality of compost? My intuition feels that it was most likely domestic caregivers or the shaman in trance states at the edge of the human habitats. A fundamental question I like to ask is, are we merely adding organic matter to the soil, or are we adding a microbe party to the soil? That's right, microbe party. That's a technical term. If plants are mostly made of air and water, then what in the world are we adding to the soil? I implore you to consider this question. Here is an excerpt from askabiologist.asu from Arizona State University. Let's learn something fascinating. Carbon sequestration. Quote, unquote, are plants made from thin air? Plants need energy from the sun, water from the soil, and carbon from the air to grow. Air is mostly made of nitrogen, oxygen, and carbon dioxide. So how do plants get the carbon they need to grow? They absorb carbon dioxide from the air. This carbon makes up most of the building materials that plants use to build new leaves, stems, and roots. The oxygen used to build glucose molecules is also from carbon dioxide. Water is another important material plants need to grow, and they get it by absorbing it through their roots. Water is made of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. The hydrogen in water is used to help build glucose molecules. A plant can be up to 95% water. Think of the water as the filler they use between carbon structures. If we take away the water from a plant, though, and look at just the dry material, a large majority of that material comes from thin air. Plants also need tiny bits of vitamins and minerals to grow popular, to grow properly, which they get through their roots. They need a lot of energy to take care of their cells and to build new ones so they can grow. They get that energy from the sun. And that was from Ask Biologist at ASU. You are tuned to the, to KZYX Philo 90.7 FM. This is the Farm and Garden Show. I'm Matthew. And today we are talking about compost. We do not have a guest on. It's solo, solo Matthew Day. Houston, is there a fungus among us? Over. Speaking of thin air, did you hear the news that came out sometime in March of this year about the discovery of unknown species of bacteria happily thriving on the outside of the International Space Station? 
Nicknamed Conan the Bacterium for its ability to endure extreme conditions, it's thought the bacteria would withstand interplanetary travel. It raises the possibility that humans will not be the first species from Earth to colonize Mars or other planets. Sometime around the beginning of the 2020s, I just, I just like to say that because it sounds futuristic, Japanese scientists announced they put petri dishes on the outside of the ISS, the International Space Station, with bacteria in them. And one year later, the bacteria had survived. Here's a quote from the article. New research from the Tanpopo mission team was published in Frontiers in Microbiology that details how multiple species of Dinococcus bacteria survived three straight years of exposure to the harsh space environment. This type of bacteria is renowned for its unusual ability to resist genetic damage from high doses of ultraviolet radiation, which classes it among other so-called extremophiles, like tardigrades. They're those tiny little wiggly jigglies. But researchers weren't sure exactly how they pulled it off. Not yet, anyways. Moving on, much is unknown about the upper boundaries of the potential unlimited survivability of the extremophiles. Life and its potential to inhabit non-terrestrial environments may be found to have no limits, even in the cosmic sea environment outside of the heliosphere, the protection of the magnetic sphere of the sun. Water is found everywhere we look. Recently, Japanese researchers, uh, upon a sample return mission from the Itokawa asteroid, found that water is on the surface of the asteroid. You know, when I was growing up in elementary school, we were told that water was nowhere except on Earth, and that's just not the case. Water is found everywhere we look. Ocean worlds and moons that are entire ocean-bound systems are all over our solar system. The James Webb Space Telescope will begin peering into the planetary atmospheres of faraway solar systems starting sometime in January. Cross your fingers for that launch on the 22nd of December this year. Although, to be fair, we now know the atmosphere to be much larger than previously imagined. Recent research has shown that the prevalence of Earth-bound wisps of air with hydrogen atoms reaches far past the orbit of the Moon, according to study and lead author Ijor Bilukian of Russia's Space Research Institute. Old data from the SOHO Space Observation Platform confirms this to be the case. Earth's geocorona stretches up to 360,000 miles past the orbit of the Moon. We are in a big bubble, indeed. And that makes the Mendocino a triple-bubble county. No longer can we reside to claim in only a double-bubble. Now let's get back to Earth. Enough of that poppycock space talk. Let's talk soil microbiomes. Let's hear what famed soil scientist and groundbreaking microbiologist Dr. Elaine Ingham has to say. She says, If we want clean water, we have to get the biology back in our soils. If we want to grow and harvest crops, we have to build soil and fertility with time, not destroy it. The only way to reach these endpoints is to improve the life of the soil. And here, from another giant in the field of soil microbiology, we hear from Australian regenerative farmer and scientist Dr. Christina Jones. And I quote from a talk by her at Chico State University at the Center for Regenerative Ag and Resilient Systems. Dr. Christina Jones says that every human civilization that degraded their soil has collapsed. Soil degradation is currently occurring at such a rate 
that it is estimated we only have 60 years of topsoil left worldwide. Jones believes that paying attention to the biology of the soil, especially the microbiology, is essential to help solve this problem. After all, microbes and other organisms in the soil create the hummus, humus that constitutes healthy soil, with structure that can sequester carbon in a stable form. When that soil is covered with plants, as is the norm in all but the most degraded natural environments, water infiltration is better. The soil holds water better. Soil erosion decreases and its fertility dramatically improves. In fact, even badly degraded soil can be restored using cover crops and biostimulants that support soil microbiology without the need for any synthetic inputs. I'll say that again, without the need for any synthetic inputs. Actually, Jones says outside inputs, especially the use of nitrogen and herbicides in any form, are so detrimental to the microbiology that eventually farmers need to add more and more to make up for what the microbes are no longer able to provide. The soil becomes compacted and the fertility eventually declines even with added fertilizer, and we are seeing this on a large scale all over the globe wherever artificial fertilizer is being used. It is her opinion that by reducing the use of fertilizer step by step over about three years while keeping the soil covered with a diverse mix of cover crops, farmers can expect to build more nitrogen through the increased soil biology and way more than the synthetic nitrogen has been able to provide. In her native Australia, farmers such as Ian and Diane Haggerty have proven this can be done. Ian and Diane Haggerty have been reclaiming 8,000 hectares of badly salinized sandy soil on the edge of salt lakes in Western Australia. They use no added fertilizers except for those provided by sheep allowed to graze on the land for the first year while the land rests, and then cover crops added through seeds coated with what is called vermi liquid or worm compost tea that activates the soil biology. The results were fast. One year after they started, they were able to successfully grow a barley crop. Today, they get four times the value of their land from their crops every year. The land is not tilled. They plant straight into the cover crop, and they use no other fertilizers or herbicides. And if I remember right, um, I believe they're getting about 10 to 12 inches of rain a year. Dr. David Johnson, faculty affiliate of CSU Chico State University and co-discoverer of the No-Turn aerobic composting system known as the bioreactor, and, sci- and his science partner and wife, Huishan Su, has this to say about the life in our soil's microbiome. Quoting from an interview from ecofarmingdaily.com, Dr. Johnson says, How we look at soil today is counterproductive. It's a living system, not a sponge that you put nutrients into so that plants grow. We need to ask the question, what biology do I need? Not what fertilizers do I add? Besides free-living, nitrogen-fixing bacteria, I'm also finding phosphorus-solubilizing bacteria. We probably have a 40-year supply of phosphorus from fertilizer in agricultural soils, but it's inaccessible by plants without the right microbes to make it available. I also see microbes that secrete plant growth-promoting hormones. This system is beautifully and exquisitely dynamic in nature. If we can restore it back on our farmlands and rangelands, There's a lot of potential, and that's an understatement. According to some of Dr. Johnson's recent uh, university-funded research, if from 10 to 27% of global agriculture were to switch to biologically enhanced agricultural management, we could remove 
all of the anthropogenic CO2 from the Earth's atmosphere and reach equilibrium in under 10 years' time. These are just preliminary studies. I don't think we quite understand the limits of what's possible if, with our partnership with microbes. We, as farmers and gardeners, have been given a new challenge. The challenge of the century, century if you ask me the challenge of the next 40 centuries and beyond. Advancements in our understanding of the soil microbiome will be some of the greatest achievements during this century. We have the tools and knowledge now to balance out the carbon budget of the planet in less than 10 years. Rapidly emerging research posits that soil fertility could be said to be a measurement of the total biological activity of a sample of soil and not only its reduced lifeless, dehydrated, inert chemical constituents. Of course, it's well known that you can achieve incredible results with yields with proper scientific soil testing and chemical analysis techniques. I, I have. But notice that very few, if not all of the available soil tests you will find, do not mention the biological activity or the ever-important fungal-bacterial ratio. And... Also notice that your bank account is dwindling under the pressure of inflation and currently hard to get or ship fertilizers. Farmers all across America are being given a choice right now. Buy the fertilizer if you can get it, or make the slow, painful transition to a bountiful future where the microbes harvest what they need and feed the plants with all that abundance. This ignorance of the complexity of the soil microbiome is a great mistake and one consequence we will all have to face together in the coming decades. Have you ever spoken to large-scale organic growers or farmers about this fertilizer crisis we're experiencing right now? I haven't. I'm just hearing about it in the media. Not using pesticides or fertilizers is wonderful to the bottom line. It is possible to make money farming and also keep the biosphere healthy in the process. Unfortunately, many large-scale organic growers have simply changed the brand of fertilizer from one inert substance to another, both causing similar damage to the soil diversity. We have many choices to make this century, or they will be making, they will be ch chosen for us. Our modern challenge is not unlike the challenge of looking into Galileo's telescope. But this is a challenge of looking within, deep within, into the microscope, to peer at the unknown universe below, to glimpse the surface of the soil microbiome. Are you afraid to look? Afraid that everything we have been taught about the soil was wrong? Surely if recent research and breakthroughs are any indication of the direction we are heading, we are on the cusp of a new paradigm of agricultural thinking and our relationship to the biosphere. This is undeniable. This can only be the case, though, if you have the courage to think outside the box, or rather, to peer into the depths of the black box called soil. Dr. David Johnson's metagenomic analyses of his bioreactor compost discovers new species of bacteria and fungi almost every time he peers through that microscope. Part of the challenge of doing this kind of exploratory science is just taking the time to classify and document the new species' discoveries. Who would have known this would slow us down? So far, E.O. Wilson's diversity of life keeps on providing new insights and surprises, 
even as the current iteration of the biosphere is eroding from right under our feet. So, my dear listener, can you join me and muster up the courage to journey forth into a new horizon of human understanding when it comes to the soil microbiome? Let's do a short whirlwind tour through some common composting and soil management techniques. And then we'll, if we have time, open up the phone lines to have a wide-ranging discussion about your composting techniques and insights. Perhaps I have it all wrong, and you know just the perfect bottled liquid solution or bag of inert powder for me to add to the garden to cure it of its fertility woes. Perhaps all this talk of the promise of microbes is a flight of fancy. Nonetheless, let's get on with it. We'll start with a soil management technique close to my heart, multi-species cover cropping. And cover cropping is a practice of keeping the soil covered with living plants all year round, in and between production plantings. And you would hope that your soil never goes bare. It's protected from the ultraviolet radiation, from the punishing winds and rains that fall down and wish to erode the soil away. Here we learn something from cropwatch.unl.edu. Advantages of diverse cover crop mixes. The decision whether to mix species or plant a single species as a cover crop depends on your goals, time of the year, and costs. Planting a mix can increase biodiversity on a farm and can also ensure against weather extremes, since different species will thrive in different weather conditions. Planting more than one species can help fulfill multiple goals that producers often want the cover crop to achieve. Grass cover crops, such as cereal rye, are most suited to prevent erosion and nutrient loss. Legumes, for example, like hairy vetch, can supply nitrogen to a subsequent crop. Brassicas, which include turnips, radish, and mustards, are fast-growing, and they scavenge nitrogen and can be grazed. Brassicas mature quickly and winter kill in some environments. But cereal rye and hairy vetch will survive winters and must be terminated in the spring. And there are many um, non-chemical methods to terminate plants. Terminate seems like a weird word. Uh, There's giant crimping machines that roll over the soil and push the cover crop down and create a nice mat for you to then come along and plant seeds in. And uh, my favorite method is manual removal. And that's where you go out in the garden and pull things up by hand and then plant what you need behind it. Um, Next, we move on to built-up piles, piles of compost. Here is an excerpt from Ecology Action's newsletter from the summer of 2015. Compost piles need to be a minimum of a cubic yard to generate enough heat to decompose materials into humus. Loosen the area 12 inches deep and cover with 2 to 4 inches of roughage, such as twigs and small branches. Layer two 5-gallon buckets of mature, dry matter, such as straw or dried leaves. Thoroughly water the pile. Top with two 5-gallon buckets of green material like grass clippings, kitchen waste, and green leaves. Water the greens so they don't dry out. Add two and a half gallons of soil to hold in moisture and hasten decomposition. Water the pile and repeat the steps above until your pile reaches a height of three feet and cap it with one five-gallon bucket of soil. Continue to water the pile daily while it heats up. After about three to four weeks, put a metal tomato steak down the middle. Let it sit for a few minutes before removing the steak to gauge the temperature. 
it should be hot to the touch. If using a compost thermometer, the pile should be around 129 to 139 degrees. Return the stake to the pile and repeat daily for two weeks until the temperature drops from hot to the touch to significantly warm or 111 to 119 degrees Fahrenheit. Turn the pile, moving the less decomposed material to the middle, and water daily. The pile will heat up again to about 119 to 129 degrees Fahrenheit for 10 to 14 days before the temperature drops once more. After three to four weeks, review the material. Once the compost is dark brown and fully decomposed, apply to the garden by broadcasting it onto previously loosened soil. Using the spading fork, sift the compost into the top two to four inches of soil. Use no more than six five-gallon buckets over a hundred square feet. And if you're just joining us, this is the Farm and Garden Show. This is KZYX. Philo 90.7 and KZYZ Willis and Ukiah 91.5 FM and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. And we are talking composting and soil management techniques. I'm Matthew. Lama and Leela are at a celebration with their family today. Next, we move on to windrow composting. And we will learn about the Marin Carbon Project from sfgate.com. A compost experiment that began seven years ago on a Marin County ranch has uncovered a disarmingly simple and benign way to remove carbon dioxide from the air holding the potential to turn the vast rangeland of California and the world into a weapon against climate change. Experiments on grazing lands in Marin County and the Sierra foothills of Yuba County by UC Berkeley biogeochemist Wendy Silver showed that a one-time dusting of compost substantially boosted the soil's carbon storage. The effect has persisted over six years, and I'll repeat that, a one-time dusting of compost. Silver believes the carbon will remain stored for at least several decades. The research showed that if compost from green waste, everything from household food scraps to dairy manure, were applied over just 5% of the state's grazing lands, the soil could capture a year's worth of greenhouse gas emissions from California's farm and forestry industries. The effect is cumulative meaning the soil keeps absorbing carbon dioxide even after just one application of compost, the researchers found. In theory, Silver calculates if compost made from the state's green waste were applied to a quarter of the state's rangeland, the soil could absorb three-quarters of California's greenhouse gas emissions for one year, due in large part to the one-time offset from waste diversion. For a lot of people, this sounds a little fantastic, Silver said, but there's nothing magic about it. Soil is a major source of carbon, and we've been bleeding it into the atmosphere for many, many years through plowing, overgrazing, and poor agricultural practices, Silver said. So anything we can do to get some of that carbon back into the soil is going to be beneficial. Unlike high-tech geoengineering schemes to pull excess carbon dioxide from the air and stick it in old coal mines or under the ocean, applying compost is a simple way of creating what scientists call a positive feedback loop. Oh, that sounds nice. A positive feedback loop. Plants pull carbon dioxide from the air through photosynthesis and transfer a portion of the carbon to the soil through their roots. Soil microorganisms then turn the carbon into a stable form, commonly known as hum humus. 
This not only sequesters the carbon, but improves the soil's fertility, boosting plant growth and capturing more carbon, while also improving the soil's ability to absorb and retain water. Wick says that since he started spreading compost on his ranch, he's seen an increase in native perennial plants and bird life, and we now have green grass year-round during a drought. He says, we stepped into a crashing system, and we bumped it once, and it corrected. That's fantastic. I, I'd love to hear about positive feedback loops. And moving on, how about comprehensive scientific-based soil testing and amendments? This from GardeningKnowHow.com. Why test soil in the garden? Most soil nutrients are readily found in the soil, provided that its pH level is within 6 to 6.5 range. However, when the pH level rises, many nutrients like phosphorus, iron, etc. become less available. When it drops, they may even reach toxic levels, which can adversely affect the plants. Getting a soil test can help take the guesswork out of fixing any of these nutrient issues. There's no need to spend money on fertilizers that aren't necessary. There's no worry of over-fertilizing plants either. With a soil test, you'll have the means for creating a healthy soil environment that will lead to maximum plant growth. What does a soil test show? A soil test can determine the current fertility and health of your soil. By measuring both the pH level and pinpointing nutrient deficiencies, a soil test can provide the information necessary for maintaining the most optimal fertil fertility each year. And I would just like to point out, this is a very reductionist view of soil. I think that fertility is a measure of biological complexity. You know, if you take soil and you dehydrate it and grind it up and pour a bunch of chemicals on it, you're not really testing for the plethora of life forms or diversity of life forms that created that soil. So it's kind of a interesting thing. You might discover that you have an incredible nutrient deficiency, and we still have a long way to go to understand precisely which microbes can help correct for that. But I like the, um, the approach of, you know, compost. The intelligence of the compost is undeniable. Let's talk about Korean natural farming. This from wikipedia.org. Korean natural farming takes advantage of indigenous microorganisms, bacteria, fungi, nematodes, and protozoa to produce fertile soils that yield high output without the use of herbicides or pesticides. A result is improvement in soil health, improving loneliness, tilth, and structure, and attracting large numbers of earthworms. Korean natural farming also enables odor-free hog and poultry farming without the need to dispose of effluent. This practice has spread over 30 countries and is used by individuals and commercial farms. The fundamental insight of Korean natural farming is to strengthen the biological functions of every aspect of plant growth to increase productivity and nutrition. Biology thereby reduces or eliminates the need for chemical interventions, whether to protect against predation and competition with other plants. For example, the metabolism of indigenous microorganisms, or IMOs, as Korean natural farmers like to call them, produce complete proteins, while insects prefer incomplete proteins. KNF avoids the use of waste products such as manure, which reduces the chance of transferring pathogens from the waste back into the food chain. Although in nitrogen-poor conditions, adding manure can increase yield. 
Korean natural farming uses the nutrients contained within the seeds. They use indigenous microorganisms. They maximize inborn potential with fewer to no inputs. They avoid commercial fertilizers. They avoid tilling. And they do not use livestock waste. Cho Han Kyu Born in 1935 in Suwon, Gwangi Province, Korea, invented the Korean natural farming method. Cho completed high school education at the age of 29 while he worked on his family's farm. In 1965, he went to Japan as an agriculture research student for three years and studied the natural f- me- farming method there. Okay, let's talk crap. Let's talk humanure here from permaculturenews.org. From the article titled, Humanor, Part 1. Why should we give a crap? Most permaculture practitioners are aware that human manure, or humanor, to use the phrase made popular by Joseph Jenkins, makes a fine agricultural resource suitable for food crops. Jenkins reported in 1999 that we in the United States each waste about a thousand pounds of humanor every year, which is discarded into sewers and septic systems throughout the land. Much of the discarded humanure finds its final resting place in a landfill, along with the other solid waste we Americans discard, which coincidentally also amounts to about a thousand pounds per person per year. It is possible that since this report, the figure has decreased. One of the main logistical problems of dealing with human waste is that the vast majority of solutions throughout the globe to the collection of this valuable resource is to flush it away with water and then treat it with chemicals and or dump it in a body of water, preferably preferably one that is as far away as possible from the toilet in question. As Jenkins points out, humanure is part of the human nutrient cycle, and in order for soils to be replenished and regenerated once crops have been grown, it is essential to return the digested nutrients. I would posit there's a bunch of good microbes in there to the soil. So why do we, instead of putting it to the ground where it can help our food grow, throw our feces into the sea or rivers. Though humanure composting could be argued as being needed on a global societal scale, the easiest way for you and I to start doing it is with our own bodies. If you have the space, building your own compost toilet can be relatively easy and cost-efficient. There are some things to consider when building one, though, the most important probably being that of ensuring that your humanure is pathogen-free. And you can check out part two of that article from permaculturenews.org. And there are a plethora of uh, time-tested methods to remove pathogens and make humanure a wonderful, viable compost. Check it out if you're interested. Next, we move on to biodynamic composting techniques. And here, once again, I pull from the imminent information source wikipedia.org biodynamic agriculture is a form of alternative agriculture very similar to organic farming but it includes various esoteric concepts drawn from the ideas of rudolf steiner initially developed in 1924 it was the first of the organic agriculture movements i don't know about that but uh we'll see biodynamic compost is a fundamental component of the biodynamic method. It serves as a way to recycle animal manures and organic wastes, stabilize nitrogen, and build soil humus and enhance soil health. Biodynamic compost is unique because it is made with biodynamic preparations, number 502 through number 507. Together, 
the BD preparations and BD compost may be considered the cornerstone of biodynamics. Here again, biological and dynamic qualities are complementary. Biodynamic compost serves as a source of humus and managing soil health and biodynamic compost also emanates energetic frequencies to vitalize the farm, according to proponents of biodynamic farming. Next, we move on to my particularly favorite method, the Johnson Sioux Bioreactor Composting Method. And we'll give a little uh, go over here. You are tuned to the Farm and Garden Show on KZYX. I'm Matthew. We're talking about compost and various soil management techniques today. Now, moving on to the Johnson Sioux Bioreactor Dr. David C. Johnson, molecular biologist and research scientist at the University of New Mexico, has developed a system that brings lifeless soils back to life by reintroducing beneficial microorganisms to the soil with biologically enhanced compost. You know, this, I just want to comment, beneficial microorganisms sounds a little bit like indigenous microorganisms. Seems like a lot of uh, these different cultural composting breakthroughs are converging towards microbes, which is good news. Anyways, moving on. This is from the Chico State University website. The Johnson Sioux composting method creates compost teeming with microorganisms that improve soil health and plant growth and increase the soil's potential to sequester carbon. This simple composting method produces a biologically enhanced compost by creating an environment where beneficial soil microorganisms thrive and multiply. When this biologically alive compost is applied to the soil, the microorganisms inoculate the soil and work in harmony with the growing plants to improve soil health and increase the amount of carbon drawn out of the atmosphere and into the soil. The benefits of the Johnson Sioux Bioreactor Compost are legion. Increases soil carbon sequestration, increases crop yield, increases soil nutrient availability, sometimes massively, increases soil water retention capacity, produces biologically diverse compost, produces nutrient-rich compost, results in a low to no salinity, improves seed germination and growth rates. Among other benefits, it reduces water usage up to six times, reduces composting labor by 66%, requires no turning and little person power. It is a low-tech process that can easily be replicated, even in third-world environments. can be made using a diversity of compost materials. produces no odors or associated insects. And that's true. I, I have seen even um, kitchen compost, which would normally produce some gnarly anaerobic smells, uh, as long as you keep it really oxygenated. The only thing you'll find in there is worms and Hopefully some soldier fly larva in the, during the warm season. Materials generally cost less than $35 and can be used up to 10 times. There is no leaching or groundwater contamination, which uh, Johnson talks about is great for small-scale operations who uh, want to avoid getting permits and things like that if you keep it under 100 yards. I believe in California you do not need a municipal composting permit. Um, but yeah, the lack of leaching or groundwater contamination is fantastic. Um, also, I would like to note, I, I know some really smart puppies who have made this same composting system using pallets um, or wooden boards. 
You don't need to use the landscape fabric necessarily. And also, there have been reports um, from Johnson and Huishen out of North Africa where they've traveled and the people there have made their Johnson Sioux compost reactors using um, woven mats or woven bamboo shoots to create that circular form. And then the oxygen tubes, which go through the compost pile. So that's just a few of the techniques that you can check out. There's a lot more out there. I'm sure I've missed uh, an embarrassing quantity of techniques. But anyways, let's just uh, kind of complete this here. That No one is going anywhere without microbes. No one is going to Mars successfully if they don't find a way to harmonize with the microbes. And, and that's that's my insight there, and I stand by that. Terraforming will only be done with microbes. Sorry, Elon, your nukes are going to have to be put back in the toy box, bro. Besides, microbes laugh and easily survive nuclear, ex nuclear explosions. So what's the point? The recent discoveries of antibiotic-resistant and disease-causing microbes coating the inside of the International Space Station are clues as to how far we have to go in reintroducing microbes into the human spacefaring environment. The human microbiome is another can of worms for another day, but once again, I infer that the future will be determined by the ultimate underdog, the invisible guests on every known surface. Good microbes keep bad microbes in check and also keep human bodies healthy. Heckity heck, they keep the whole biosphere in check. With or without us, they will continue to plod along towards infinity. Why not join them and their Oros Boros selves for the ultimate ride? I know I want to. And I hope you enjoyed that little introduction to the wonderful world of compost and soil management techniques going to open up the phone lines and uh, in the meantime we will hear a little audio excerpt from uh, a presentation by Dr. David Johnson so if you'd like to call into the studio talk about your favorite composting techniques or tips um, you can call in the universal listener call in number at 707-895-2448 and for now, let's hear a little bit about what Dr. David Johnson has discovered. We have about almost a century now of this conventional model that we've been pursuing. And it's been leading us. Things look good, at least on the surface. But when we get underneath the surface and see what we're doing to our environment, what we're doing to our health, um, we need to probably look for a different model. With what we're doing now, we're losing soils at 10 times the rate of formation. The thickness of a piece of paper is about one ton of soil on an acre. Okay, looks like we might have a phone call here. Let's see if I can get him on the line. Hello, caller. You are live on the air. Hi, I just wanted to tell a very small story about, I am not a gardener, and I've been listening with fascination to your program, and remembering the time 
but I had for almost a year a sod roof on my car. And it grew little, tiny, um, it looked like grass. And I park, parked my car under the redwood trees, and uh, surely a lot of needles fell down and all that stuff. <laughs> and I guess it was a year of very little water. At any rate, I would say they grew to be maybe three-quarters of an inch long. And I was very proud of it and terrified to touch it for fear I'd wreck things. <laughs> but I, I, I think that is the biggest in my life, um, what, uh, you know, nice message for natural farming. And that's all I wanted to say. Oh, that's excellent. Thanks for sharing that. Sure. Yes, I've had the great pleasure of living within an earthen building that had a green roof. Um, and it, it was really fantastic to see it go through its cycle of growing grass and then, you know, some wildflowers popping up on there. And not to mention all the other benefits of having a, a green roof. All right. So we'll continue on with, um, hearing Dr. Johnson talk about compost. And we're losing at 10 times the rate of new soil formation in, in India and China, 16 to 18 times. The soils that we have left, about 40% of what we started with, actually. We're okay, well, looks like we got somebody else here. Give me just a second. All right. Hello, are you there? Yes. What would you like to talk about today? We've got a, just a couple minutes here. Oh, shoosh. Well, I've been thinking about uh, humanure for decades, and I do humanure composting. Um, I live on a high water table, so uh, I've been doing anaerobic, but I've been thinking a lot about it. Oh, shoosh. Okay, two things. Try to do it quick. So one of the things I've been thinking about is, like, something like a boat or RV toilet toilet where you can separate the chamber and hopefully get a like a pee runoff mm -hmm. but it would still hold the solids and then you could like flip the handle and it would drop down and you'd have a series of racks um, wire mesh large going to smaller as it dried and that would be a chamber too that would have a pilot light that would be burning off the gas and actually heating uh, and preparing the the solids. Mm, mm -hmm. Okay, so that was that's just one that I thought could get commercial and whatnot usage to work on that design. The other thing I love the um, idea of a big inner tube, the big truck inner tube, where you seal off one end and you pack it with compost, and then it already has that little nozzle that you could run the gas off of, run something off of it, off that nozzle. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, it's just, ah, I love that. I want to do it. And then, but I was thinking, that would anyone know that um, if there's pee mixed in with the poo, because if you're using humanure in there, you could kind of mix all your composting in there, would that ammonia be a problem? Hmm. 
So those we'll are my ha- we will have to ponder that. Thank you for calling. Uh-huh. Um, we are about to end the radio show, and thank you so much, everyone. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM. KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM. And Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org. And consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.